Welcome to the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast, also known as the SASPod. I am Lalita Duperon, Associate Director in the Center for South Asia. All our podcasts and information about the center are available at southasia.stanford.edu. Today, we welcome on the SASPOT Dr. Charu Singh, lecturer in history at Stanford. She recently arrived at Stanford from Cambridge, where she held the Adrian Research Fellowship in the History of Science at Darwin College. In spring 2022, she will be offering an undergraduate colloquium on science and society in modern South Asia. And she recently published a major article in South Asian history and culture titled Science in the Vernacular, Translation, Terminology and Lexicography in the Hindi Scientific Glossary in 1906. Charu, thank you so much for making time for us today. How are you? Hi, Lalita. Thank you for having me on the SASPOD. It is a pleasure to speak with you. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. We have a lot to talk about. Um, uh, let's start by talking about the recent article, as that will foreshadow some later questions I have for you as well. Um, I found it a fascinating read, even though I know nothing about science. It's a very rich read, and I'm curious how you negotiated having to be a historian of language and a historian of science when working on the article. Thanks, Lalita. In a way, the article is about those readers who know literally nothing about science. Perfect. And at the same time, absolutely. And, and these readers who know nothing about science also have other forms of knowledge, forms of knowledge that are often expressed in languages other than the dominant language of science. In South Asia, the dominant language of science was English, and regional languages, the vernaculars, were more certainly not those languages. So the article focuses on Indian science learners and the challenge of learning new forms of scientific knowledge in new languages in colonial South Asia. I'm especially interested in those colonial subjects who wanted to make the European sciences available to readers in South Asia's regional languages. Mm. The technical vocabulary of the modern sciences posed a major challenge to these vernacular readers. At the turn of the 20th century, language activists who wanted to transform South Asian languages into languages of science education began to translate the technical terms of European scientific disciplines. My article focuses on the Hindi scientific glossary published by the Nagari Pracharini Sabha of Banaras in 1906. Mm -hmm. This glossary contained lists of technical terms in English with their Hindi equivalents in seven scientific disciplines. By translating technical terms, the Sabha wanted to use the glossary as a tool to assimilate European scientific knowledge into Hindi. Mm -hmm. They hoped that this glossary would help Hindi language intellectuals write essays in periodicals, produce textbooks, and thus make science available to vernacular readers. 
And in the article, I analyzed the making of the Hindi scientific glossary in the same years that such projects of translating technical terms were also taking off in other South Asian languages. So my aim is to bring together historiographies of language and literature, science and education, and nationalism to demonstrate the voluntary intellectual and linguistic labors needed to translate science for vernacular publics. So I am, uh, it's such a, it's, there's so much in the article and thank you for, for giving us the, uh, the basics of it. And obviously we're going to talk more about how people can read it later. Um, I found the various strategies that were employed to negotiate the quote unquote problem of scientific language are really interesting um, because there were so many different approaches. There was transliterating English, a borrowing from other vernaculars, and maybe you can speak to that a little bit more, that this wasn't just a Hindi endeavor. Um, obviously, creating new words through Sanskrit, which I think most of us are familiar with that process. Um, and these, to me, these strategies seemed quite random. So maybe you can say a little bit more about uh, the logic behind them, if, if there was any. Um, and then I was also a bit surprised uh, that some of the strategies involved borrowing words from Urdu rather than turning to Sanskrit, uh, which seems to have been more in line with the pro-Hindi movement at the time. So can you say more, sorry, that's a very big question, but can you say more about these various options and, and why they were chosen? Thank you for noting all those different translation <laughs> strategies used by the glossaries translators, Lalita. It's true, it's a dizzying variety. And each of these choices reflect particular imperial and nationalist ideologies of languages and civilizations. They indicate how European and Indian in translators judge the relationship between classical and vernacular languages and how they evaluated the intellectual capacities of vernacular readers and speakers. So let's consider these strategies in the context of chemical nomenclature in Hindi. In 1901, when the university graduate Thakur Prasad translated the names of chemical elements into Hindi, he tactically combined several of these strategies. Uh, for instance, he transliterated the names for nickel and platinum on the grounds that these elements were becoming popular in India. Perhaps his readers would be already aware of them. For oxygen and nitrogen, Prasad coined new terms rooted in Sanskrit, even though such neologisms had already been coined in the 1860s by the European Orientalist James Robert Ballantyne. Prasad called oxygen dahakvayu, the air that ignites. He called mm -hmm. nitrogen nirdyotaj, that which extinguishes a flame. Mm. Moreover, Prasad turned to the Bengali names for elements, which had been coined by the essayist and science professor Ramendra Sindar Tribedi in Calcutta for the Bangya Sahitya Parishad in the 1890s. Um, so as you can see, the, the, the choices that uh, one single translator, Thakur Prasad, makes to combine multiple strategies in actually performing this work of translating nomenclature across English and Hindi takes place in this interlingual, multilingual space where Sanskrit as well as Bengali and the notional possibility of even looking to Urdu is always a possibility. So we, we might see the preference for transliterating English language technical terms wholesale into Indian languages as the Anglicist denouncement of the capability of South Asian languages to be able media of modern science. Mm. 
Similarly, we might see the preference for coining neologisms by using Sanskrit word roots as the Orientalist and later nationalist edification of Sanskrit as the foundational language of Indian civilization. However, as I show in the essay, in practice, most translators make tactical choices between these two extremes. They use transliteration, translation, and neologisms as parallel strategies, depending on the users they imagined for the glossary and shaped by their own political and aesthetic sensibilities. So do you think it depended on, um, because it wasn't just that each person has had his, and I'm presuming it is a him, uh, his own strategy. The one person could have different strategies depending on the actual element, for instance, that they were translating. Is that what you're saying? Uh, so first of all, often we don't know exactly what someone's thinking. So it's quite rare to have a document that gives us insight into the reasoning behind, right. behind the choice for translation. And in this case, because we have to remember what the form of a glossary is. So just imagine in your mind when we open a dictionary or a glossary, you see lists and lists of terms without an explanation for why a particular word has been chosen. And this is before, let's say, the detailed inscriptions in an OED, which also give you usages of a particular term. In, in the kind of lexicography that say these uh, members and writers and translators um, in the Hindi uh, intellectual world of the late 19th century, they're, they're basically creating lists. And it is a rare document which either through prefatory material or through actual um, context where a word is followed by a brief explanation. And this is what this is the strategy that Thakur Prasad uses to, to tell us why he selected a particular name for an element and, and discarded another. But even there, you, the explanation is not, it's not like a form where you fill an exact explanation giving the reasons for why a particular word was chosen or discarded. Right. It's more erratic. And I think part of the work of peeling away the layers of a text like the glossary is to, is to imagine what, what might a new convert to chemistry, a new someone who's learning, the learning new European chemical knowledge, perhaps in a university classroom in Calcutta or in Banaras, what is he thinking when he thinks he now has to translate this knowledge for a new linguistic community, a new epistemic community who doesn't already know Sanskrit, uh, chemistry, but, but, but maybe with these words and maybe a system of words can begin to use them. Does that explain it? It does. But you know what I kept thinking <coughs> while I was reading and I was actually nervous too. I didn't put that in, in my notes, but I'm going to ask you now. Um, sure. And I, I, I always ask the uh, <laughs> the more simplistic questions and I hope that the audience bears with me and I hope that you bear with me. So I was thinking a lot of these things that the Europeans quote unquote discovered in terms of science already existed, right? I mean, they were, they, they were there, nobody discovered anything. They, these, were, these are natural phenomena that exist, like the elements, whatever. And so I don't fully understand if all of these things just hadn't been named before and now had to be translated from having been named or whether there had been ways of looking at these things that just didn't fit into the colonial mindset. Does that make sense? 
It's a great question. And you're absolutely right about um, um, the priority disputes that we think narrate the history of science as someone discovered something first. But I do think that the story of science in colonial spaces like North India in the, uh, at the turn of the 20th century is that maybe we're looking at this, the same natural physical world but through different epistemological categories and therefore different names. And in asking this question, you've touched upon some themes that are actually really important for my book project, where I'm thinking through the translations of the physical and chemical sciences um, in, in, in the world of um, the readers and authors of a new popular science monthly called Vigyam that's coming mm-hmm. out from Allahabad in the early 20th century. And in some ways, what the book tries to do is to look at um, how th- there are different ways of understanding physical phenomena, but describing them in different languages. So one language that we may call the language of the European sciences, which identifies chemicals and elements in these particular ways by naming them argon or lithium or platinum. And the other imaginary that we might think that is being changed in this challenged changed, um, self-transforming as well in this time is what we might call the Shastric view, the Shastric imaginary as it's been called by Brian Hatcher, which, uh, which sees this, this, this entire, the same physical natural world in a slightly different way uh, that, that defines, and, and, and the particular concept that for me is becoming very important is this idea of the panchatattva or the five elements of mm-hmm. which the natural and physical world is made up. Um, and, and so partly through my articles and the book project, one of the things that I'm trying to understand is the role played by language as a kind of epistemic practice in, in giving different names to things that are apparently the same. Um, so, yeah. Um, so you're absolutely right that many, there are things, so the question about the things that have existed before is always a very dangerous question in South Asia because <laughs> apparently everything has existed before. Everything goes back to the Vedas, right? Right. <laughs> yeah, but in many ways, I think the, the ambition and I think um, the aim of my scholarship is to think harder about why do some forms of reasoning persist? Why is it that it is, it is easy to think of these deep uh, genealogies of the modern sciences in a Shastrik or a Vedic past? And why is it, and one of the striking things about looking at South Asian history alongside other histories is that these novel genealogies of the sciences as Hindu science or Islamic science or Chinese science are being crafted in different nationalist contexts at the end of the 19th century. So I think we do need to ask, why is it that they continue to persist in some places longer or more powerfully than others? Why do they even become a powerful way of public reasoning? So that's that's the bigger question in some ways that I'm trying to grapple with in my research. And to, to think of the Hindu sciences as um, an epistemic object that is available to a range of people and mobilized in different ways. Um, yeah, I'll pause there. 
You know, it reminds me, this is a little embarrassing, but I'll just admit it and it'll be in the ether forever. <laughs> I, I, when I was an undergrad, so I was young and I didn't know very much as disclaimer, um, I was having acupuncture for something and the acupuncturist said um, something about my pancreas. And I said, what does the pancreas do? Exactly? It wasn't the pancreas, it was the spleen, because I knew about the pancreas, the spleen. I'm like, what does the spleen do exactly? And he said, in Western or in Chinese thoughts. And I said, in my body, like it had never crossed my mind. There might be different ways of looking at the spleen. But of course, I was raised in Europe with this European thinking and it was kind of a, a, a moment of enlightenment in some ways for me. And I'm reminded of it now speaking to you because we are in Europe trained to think of things being this way and being quote unquote scientific, right? And that is the benchmark. Modes of public reasoning and just what comes to be public forms of knowledge. So the fact that you growing up in Europe in the late 20th century already know and think of this is what this this is what the pancreas are and this is what they do. But, but the practitioner's question there is really interesting, right? Because he's, he's, in, he's aware that there are at least two images of the body. So right. both the Western and the Chinese. And so I guess in the same way, I, I think what I'm interested in are two images of knowledge that exist within the colonial episteme, within the multi, multi, multilingual epistemological space that is South Asia. And I would think it's, like these are only two of those those images of knowledge that exist. There are so many others that we haven't even begun to flesh out in as much detail. For example, we know far less about what cosmological views amongst indigenous groups such as Adivasis look like. We know far less about even what corresponding to the Shastric image of knowledge, if one had to draw out a Perso-Arabic image of knowledge, and I think what recent work in the history of science, technology, and medicine and knowledge makes possible is to start putting these images of knowledge at least next to each other. Do mm-hmm. not think of the transformation as complete. Because actually, if we look at recent ethnographies of scientific and medical practice in contemporary South Asia, we know that these other points of view, these other images of the body or the cosmos continue to motivate people in a whole range of ways. So I don't think that the colonial image of knowledge wins out fully in that sense. That and so yeah, I, I feel like that we could go in so many directions from here. Yes, but, we could. Yeah. Um, let us stay in Europe for a moment, um, because the other thing that I was uh, thinking about uh, when I was reading the article is um, I was wondering how non, non-colonial states negotiated these language issues. Um, and I, I guess I was wondering if that was even a, a, an instructive way of looking at it. Um, but I, I think that in Holland, we relied on French and, and probably Latin is held up there as the language of science. And I'm waving my fingers in air quotes um, <laughs> just to clarify that. Uh, but I also know that in Germany, there was this incredibly strong move. And you do um, refer to this in the article uh, towards creating an entirely new kind of German based uh, vocabulary. And so was it helpful to look at examples from outside of India, either in other colonial contexts or from within Europe? 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the problem of nomenclature has been an enduring one, even in Europe, given Europe's deep multilingualism. Right. And I would point our listeners to Professor Michael Gordon's fine book, Scientific Babel, to learn more about the emergence of English as the language of global science in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. One of my most striking discoveries during research for this article was that the historical actors that I was looking at, either European or Indian, were acutely aware of the adoption and adaptation of scientific nomenclature to different national linguistic contexts in Europe. So the Bengali polymath Rajendralal Mitra uses this linguistic diversity of European scientific nomenclature to argue against the Anglicist claim that transliteration of English language terms directly into South Asian languages would lead to some kind of common terminology all over India. Um, so in fact, not only, not only is, is that history of uh, European nomenclature, a history that scholars like I think with, but also that our historical actors are thinking within in a sense. So, and I think that that is, to me, that was a really significant finding to think of the contemporaneity of knowledges that people live within, even as colonial actors. Um, But to speak directly to your question, um, I found the history of Arabic and Chinese translations of technical terms, especially instructive. As I show by the end of the article, the genre of the glossary has been seen as a solution to the problem of assimilating new knowledge in contexts far beyond colonial South Asia. So I would ask some of those listeners who choose to read the article um, to actually go to the conclusion to to help see some of these, uh, the, the resonance of these histories in a global perspective. As I, as drawing on the scholarship of scholars like Marwa El-Shakri, um, what I what I argue there is that, like these Hindi intellectuals, the intellectuals of the late Qing and Ottoman empires too used glossaries of technical terms to assimilate European scientific knowledge in their languages. I believe we have much to gain from examining the Hindi scientific glossary in light of these East Asian and Middle Eastern histories as part of the global circulations of modern scientific knowledge. I love how your... Um suggesting to our listeners that they read the article and uh, of course uh, we uh, they should uh, and it is a wonderfully open source and we're going to put the link to it in the uh, the notes for the podcast and also on our website so it's going to be easy for people to get to it and it's uh, really congratulations that it's so accessible that's really uh, fantastic Let's talk about the course you plan to offer next quarter. Uh, so we are currently in um, in winter and the course will be happening in spring. It's called Science and Society in Modern South Asia. So I'm just curious um, how you plan to narrow this down, if I may say so, this rather ambitious topic, uh, and at whom the course is aimed. Sure. Uh, the course focuses on the dynamic relationship between science and society in South Asia. So instead of thinking about scientific practice as the exclusive domain of the British colonial state Mm -hmm. or European practitioners or even Indian scientists, the course introduces students to the knowledge practices of a range of actors in South Asian society. So among the questions we will be asking uh, are how and where did South Asians learn, practice and produce scientific knowledge? How did they mobilize this knowledge in their own political agendas? 
And also whose knowledge has counted or discounted as scientific knowledge over the past 200 years in South Asia. Mm-hmm. So at different points in the course, we will step back from South Asian scientific modernity to think with other non-Western experiences of global scientific modernity. So in that sense, I'm experimenting with what is called Asia's method in the history of science and SDS in the Stanford classroom. Um, and the course is an undergraduate colloquium offered at the history department. It is also open to graduate students and to students in science, technology, and society. It is capped at 15 students. So, but I look oh. forward to having students from various, various backgrounds and disciplines in the classroom. And we'll see how it goes. The Science, Technology and Society program is wonderful. We co-sponsored a, a bunch of lectures last year and I went to most of them. It was just fantastic. Uh, so Captured 15, people, if you're listening and you'd like to enroll for this class, I think enrollment starts for uh, spring on March 1st. So enroll when you can. And uh, uh, that's it's it sounds sounds amazing. Congratulations Thank on Thanks getting that together. Yeah, of yeah. course. Now, uh, this the article, I mean, it was like a minor book project, right? I mean, it's not even a particularly long article, but it's just very, very rich. So I imagine it was a, a, a source of great pride and probably also some relief when it was out of the way. Uh, what are some new projects you're going to work on next? You referenced a book project, so tell us more. Yeah, um, I'm, at the moment, I'm working on a new article on the rise of the scientist as a new persona in South Asia. Oh. The paper asks, how did the scientist emerge as an exemplar of moral conduct and a figure of sociocultural authority among vernacular publics? Mm. But the big project for this year really is the book project, which, um, which I indicated briefly earlier. It examines translations of the modern physical and chemical sciences amongst the readers, authors, and editors of a Hindi language science monthly, which is called Vigyan in early 20th century North India. So Vigyan is brought out by a voluntary scientific society called the Vigyan Parishad right from 1915. And it has never quite ceased publication. It has continued to come out over the last hundred years. I use the Vigyan archive, which is a serialized archive, because you can read runs of Vigyan each year, every one, and uh, it's a monthly, so one issue every month, um, as, as an archive of scientific sensibility, as, as a way in which new readers, new learners of the sciences are being introduced to European knowledge that is otherwise uh, available only in university classrooms or Mm -hmm. even in school classrooms, but not as much to vernacular readers of the public sphere. Um, So the book uses the Vigyan archive to think about um, what are the, how, how is epistemologic new new kinds of ways of thinking about the world, living in it, thinking about the cosmology, thinking about the body, how they're being mapped out for Hindi readers. Um, The main aim in the book is to think of how this project of translating science into Hindi is also a privileged caste uh, Hindu project in many ways. Mm. So my aim is to put the history of science in conversation with some core themes within South Asian history, those of caste, of language, of linguistic and religious nationalism, and to read Vigyan as an archive for both histories of science and linguistic nationalism in South Asia. So that's what I'll be working on. 
what an incredible project. It's, it's, I can't wait to read it. Do you have any sense um, of how long you'll be working on this? Do you have a, a timeline? Um, I would like to have the manuscript done in 2022 and send it out for review next year. That's the aim. We'll see how it's still early in the new year and one can make many promises to oneself. And this is, that's, I think, what I really want to do. I think that's we'll a fantastic see. resolution within 2022. Well, fingers crossed, but life also does its thing. So it's, yeah. uh, we know how, we know how it goes. Um, Charu Singh, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, as I said, we're going to link to the article. Uh, people can find it on your Twitter as well. What's your Twitter handle? Um, it's Naghar Naghat, uh, which most uh, Hindi speakers will know as the second half of an idiom. Um, so yeah, Naghar, Naghar. Yeah. People will find it for sure. I am honored and delighted to be able to call you a colleague and I wish you all the best. Thank you, Lalita. This was wonderful. Thank you so much for having me on this as well. Of course. Uh, as always, I want to thank Soham Shiva for creating the intro and the outro to the SASPOD uh, and also Simrat Mataru for doing post-production. And I also just want to mention we had a few internet issues. So if you hear a little a buzz here or there, uh, then that's why. Apologies for that. But COVID continues and we're still recording from home. Thank you, everybody, and see you again soon. Thank you for listening to the SASPOD, the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast. Find out all about the Stanford Center for South Asia at southasia.stanford.edu and find us on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you can tune in again soon. Come, fair.